sickness is rising it seems that all that was good has died oh no the world is a scary place now that you've woken up the demon in me Bobby will you give it to me oh get up come on get down with the sickness you mother get up come on get down with Sickness, you fucker, get up Come on, get down with the dickness Open up your hate and let it flow into me Why can't you just fuck up and die? Get down with the sickness Fuck you, I don't need this shit I'm down with the sickness You stupid, sadistic, abusive fucking organ Down with the sickness Here it comes Get ready to die Get ready to Welcome to episode 67 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky. And I'm Neil. And making his return to the podcast is one of our very favorite people. He's a podcast veteran. He's the co-host of the I Don't Get It podcast. He has his own brilliant YouTube channel. And he's guest hosted Film 89 several times as well as innumerable episodes of Wrong Real. And quite fittingly for tonight's point of discussion, he's completely dead inside. It is, of course, the venerable Mr. Bill Scurry. Bill, welcome back to Film 89. Hey man, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. This is one of my favorite internet clubhouses, and you two are two of my favorite cats uh, to hang out with. So I'm really glad to be here tonight. And it's, it's just over a year, actually, since you were last on the podcast with uh, when you, you and John and Matthias uh, did Manhunter. Holy shit, that's right. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I think that was one of the. I think that was the first episode of. No, was it? Yeah, I think it was the first episode of Film Eighty Nine when none of the the sort of founding fathers appeared. We kind yeah. of gave yeah, everyone a, a welcome break from us all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we had, a, we had a good time doing that one. It was a good choice. So tonight, as we're still without the cinema as a means of our film nourishment, we are aiming our sights at Netflix's latest big offering, Zack Snyder's zombie action film Army of the Dead, starring Dave Bautista as Scott Ward, who, following a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, leads a group of mercenaries on a heist to recover $200 million from a hotel casino vault before the US government level off the walled city with a tactical nuke. Now, we know that Army of the Dead did get a limited theatrical release in the US, but Bill, as far as you're aware, did it get any kind of cinema release in your new home country of the Netherlands? Uh, no, theaters are still not open yet. Uh, only terrace dining for the most part and, and shopping without appointment, but no, theaters are still uh, on the blacklist for the moment. Yeah, and I think it's the same here, Neil, isn't it? We've. I think this is sort of limited, uh, funny enough. I'm if I think totally they've opened off. this week, haven't they? 
Yeah, I was gonna say totally off the sort of the tack we're talking about tonight's film, but um my my the well the future Mrs. Gaskin has just booked Peter Rabbit two for her son next week. Yeah. So I think Blast is a very sort of sort of small sort of niche cinema. So I don't know if the major ones are open yet, but I think some of the smaller cinemas are doing sort of limited previews and limited showings. Yeah. But yeah, as it, as, as, it, as it goes, you and I can't go to the cinema at the moment. That's right. Well, yeah, and, and we certainly know there's no big releases like this. I think actually, I think cinemas opened last week, didn't it? Because Steve posted that um, a cinema local to us was showing uh, Fellowship of the Ring, Taxi Driver, and a few kind of classic films like that. But as far as, you know, yeah. mainstream big releases, there's nothing at the moment. And I think this being kind of the closest it's come to. I think, isn't it, Bill, that Netflix own uh, a cinema in New York that they bought outright and that allows them to theatrically exhibit uh, their properties there? Yeah, they own the old Paris cinema, uh, Paris theaters, rather, which is on a very recognizable plot in New York you will know from movies, which is right in front of the Plaza Hotel, right on the corner of uh, Fifth Avenue in Central Park, Central Park East. That was one of those, like, Woody Allen-type theaters. I mean, like, movies are shown there, but, like, the people in his in his movies go to it. It was a very uh, New Yorker-type reader, French film place. And when it was one of those venerable, I think it's a single room. So when it was going to go out, when it was going to go down, people cried and they bitched and moaned. And then Netflix swooped in to make it pretty much a screening room, which goes to show you what the economy is like, both in terms of who's got money to throw around and what is considered just an asset rather than, you know, a part of the cultural heritage of a place like New York City. Mm. And of course, I suppose it gives it gives the benefit as well of uh, films have to have a sort of limited cinema release to be eligible for Oscar nominations. Obviously, they I would did, think tonight, tonight's there, film yeah. would be in the running for that, I would think, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember. They, Netflix did it in particular. I know they did Mank. Um, that was one of their big deals was to show Mank there because that was their push of trying to treat it as if, you know, it was just as good as any cinema release and they wanted to... Uh, roll out the red carpet. I'm missing something earlier. I can't remember, but yeah, they bought it uh, for that purpose was to give to elevate one of their movies to a, a piece of prestige. Certainly, mm. Scorsese did a similar thing with The Irishman, didn't he? Where there was some sort of limited. He was even available over here. One, I think Steve went to watch it. Somewhere, yeah, yeah. He? Steve and Tony when he recorded their episode, they actually went to see it. Was a chapter they went to? Yeah, there was the chapter art it was in, which yeah. is um, kind of a, a local kind of art house cinema near to us. I think it, it's one of those stipulations that in order to be eligible for Oscar consideration: the film has to have a, a limited theatrical run of, of a certain, you know, number of, of venues at least to be eligible. And obviously, The Irishman and, and a few other sort of Netflix, I think Amazon releases have had to sort of pass that eligibility thing. And now, I mean, that obviously will be up for next year's uh, greatest screenplay. Uh, oh, sort of possibly, yes, yeah. yeah, it may <laughs> well be. <laughs> Best zombie tiger goes to. <laughs> it's gonna win. It's gonna win, guys. What do you what do you know about the kind of history of this film? Because it's my understanding that this film has kind of been quite long in the inception. I think it was first mooted around about the time of of two thousand and four, just after Zack Snyder had done his kind of you know main directorial debut, Dawn of the Dead, obviously the remake of um, George Romero's nineteen seventy eight film. And then I believe after several failed attempts, he kind of came back on board as a writer, and it was sort of a project that was bandied around until it eventually. Um, I think in 2019, it finally got the green light. I think, wasn't it Warner Brothers? You know, they first picked up the ticket and then it fell to Netflix, um, I think, probably around about the beginning of the time of the pandemic when things started to fall apart theatrically. Yeah, I think that Netflix got the distro, but Warner, you know, which has been in bed with Snyder for a while, they tried very hard to make him happy. Uh, I think they gave him a remit to make the movie he wanted to. 
Um, but when it came time to distribute it, it looked like streaming was the best way to go. Mm. And of course, Zack Snyder in 2021 has had some experience with um, streaming original because he, you know, as I as I pithily uh, said on WhatsApp a couple of days ago, he had six and a half hours of movie this year out, which I think it might be a record for any single filmmaker short of mm. Bellatar in terms of how many, you know, how much product they put out. Yeah. Let, let's just start with obviously myself and Neil. You know, we've discussed Zack Snyder recently on our episode about uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, uh, and Bill. Uh, you know, for people who haven't heard your analysis of that film, I don't get it. What is your kind of um, opinion at the moment of Zack Snyder as a filmmaker? Um, you know, it's really um, I, I go two different ways with Zack Snyder because. I think in some ways his first movie was his finest. And I mean, I think we're going to refer back to um, 2000, was 2003's 2004. Uh, Dawn of the Dead? 2004. 2004. 2004's Dawn of the Dead, uh, which of course, you know, was was a, a world away in terms of who Zack Snyder was when he released it. And he was dealing with a, a James Gunn script. Nobody knew who James Gunn was at the point because he was just a, a trauma guy. Um, and that was one of his first big scores uh, in terms of, putting his particular acerbic kind of witty irony superhero-y media savvy thing into a movie that was a you know a combination of a lot of things in terms of also great casting uh for that movie and you know one of the things that me and my wife first bonded over because we met in 2002 just by coincidence we went out to go see uh dawn of the dead and she her thing is rupaul's drag race like she's not a movie person and she's definitely not a zombie person but for some reason she loves she loves she loves to see the beginning of a disaster movie where everything goes to shit because she just wants to see the mechanism of how it happens she's very interested in that idea so we went to go see that movie i think we saw it twice and we watched it another two times on video so i have a lot of warm feeling for Zack snyder my wife you know vibed on at the beginning you know and the thing is with each movie Zack snyder has made i've gotten a little further away certainly in different increments depending on what the project was had no problem with 300 although 300 wasn't my kind of movie uh, I enjoyed watching it. I really enjoyed the Frank Miller comic. Didn't love the Frank Miller comic, so I wasn't sacrosanct, you know, that I needed to have it stick to the page. His version of Watchmen was fine. It wasn't the version of Watchmen that I'd want. It was an okay, as my friend Noah Tarno said, probably the best version of Watchmen that we were going to get. Certainly in that time, in 2008. And I didn't see uh, uh, Baby Cake. Not what, What's this, the freaking movie? That, Sucker Punch, Sucker sorry. Sucker Punch, yes. yeah. I didn't see it. I wasn't interested in Sucker Punch at all, Baby Cake. What am I talking about? Yeah, so then, you know, we zip ahead to him doing DC Comics stuff. And I was really excited by that first trailer he did to Man of Steel. There was something really compelling about the iconography, about that that Hans Zimmer score. It, it, got, it got somewhere. It looked like it was tapping into something more mythic than Dick Donner did back in 1978, which is a... 77 now 78 which was amazing then the movie came out and it's like this this is this is what he thinks superman is this is what his impression of superman is like this this is i, I it didn't have to be respectful but it's like you completely missed the point of the character i'm not saying anything has to be you know adhere to the, the spear of an ip but it's like i don't quite understand why he wanted to make a superman movie if that was the superman movie he made and that's kind of where the the weird ugly divorce between me and um, Zack snyder begins you know and i didn't think batman versus superman I think it was a shambles. I think it was a terrible movie. And then the, the the first cut of Justice League was kind of a joke. And then, the you know, get to the Snyder cut. I watched it. I watched it all. And I felt like it was Stockholm Syndrome, where I had to see it because I wanted to be part of the conversation that was going to happen. I really needed to know what was going on. Also, we did an episode of it on my podcast, too. So long story short, 
you know, that felt like a, a near traumatic experience. You know, I live a very coddled life these days, so I get to count that as a traumatic experience. So I, I wasn't, I wouldn't exactly say I was looking forward to this, but I thought, well, maybe this is a return to the halcyon days of what made Zack Snyder tick. Maybe this is him accessing, uh, you know, those first few embers of feature filmmaking. You know, and I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious to see what you guys thought of it. Yeah, I gotta be honest with, with, with Snyder. I always think he's almost, like you say, a victim of his own success because you're sort of opening Gambit. There's nobody, like you say, you've got him and James Gunn, two unknowns at the time, and it sort of just hit you out of nowhere, didn't it? Whereas when you come back with, you know, like like you say, with 300, yeah, you know, I'm not going to put it up there in my all-time favourites, but I, I enjoyed it, you know, for what it was. And I understood it was that type of movie, and it was that type of style movie. And I was like, okay, I, I, you know, I appreciate what he's doing here. And then, like you say, progressively, I don't know the better way of saying this, but he kind of disappeared up his own asshole a little bit, didn't he? You know, let's look at the start. He had Dawn of the Dead. He, he's basically remaking one of the most you know beloved horror films of all time. Personally, I think he did a fantastic job of it. I'm a big fan of Romero's 1978 original, and I went into this film thinking, "No, this is this is sacrilege." And I came out the other end thinking, "Holy shit!" Yeah, we both had a similar sort of discussion afterwards when we said when we saw it. Then we? we saw it separately, and we were both like sort of like, yeah. "I didn't want to enjoy that, yeah. but I, I did." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to speak bad of Romero's original film because I, I do love it but there are things about that film I always think I, I wish the effects were better I, I wish sometimes it just didn't look like they had this sort of like pasty blue green paint over them you know I, I, I wish it was a little bit more epic in scale and this film as much as there was on occasion a little bit too much of a reliance on CG effects it did take the same film it expanded on it in terms of its scope visually and it also added a, a sense of humor which fit in perfectly with the you know the social commentary about consumerism and stuff like that you know Snyder was all on board with that you know he kept that in as he should have and apart from one or two little things especially the, the kind of post-credits ending which I think is completely unnecessary and spoils the film and I, I, I wish I could just cut that you know out of both versions that exist of the film but I, I think for, you know, out of the gate, you know, for a first-time director, I thought it was a fantastic film. And like Bill says, it could well be his best film. I don't think it is because I know a lot of people are kind of, there's a bit of a love-hate sort of thing with Watchmen. I think Watchmen is as good as a, of a cinematic adaptation of the book as we're ever going to get. And I think it's a damn, damn good film. I think personally in the, in the director's cut form, which is one of three cuts of the film, I think it's nigh on as close to perfect as you're going to get. Um, I know he did make changes from the book, which is seen as quite controversial, but there are aspects of the book which I just don't think translate to the big screen. I like the book a lot. I wouldn't say I'm a diehard fan of it. Um, you know, I probably, for the first time, read the book around about the time of seeing the film. So I, I wasn't someone who had, had like years of knowledge of this book and had read it multiple times. You know, I really do like the book. I appreciate it a lot. Watchmen, for me, is still his best film. And you know, obviously, Neil, you and I and Richie have, have discussed then, you know, all the DC-related films he did after that. But the one we've not discussed is Sucker Punch, which is, is kind of his original IP from 2011. I've seen it once. I never want to see it again. Zack Snyder, as a filmmaker, I really like the guy. I think he is really likable. He's really passionate about film. And every time I see him, I see an interview with him. He's someone who I, I can't dislike him for, you know, for, for, for any particular reason. Although I do think a lot of the time his own particular style takes front and centre over other aspects, which I wish he would give a little bit more attention to. 
in particular the writing i'm definitely not a hater of Zack snyder some of the films he's made i have outright disliked batman vs superman really don't like that film but then others like i say dawn of the dead and watchmen i've really really enjoyed it seems to be that there's like sort of two camps you either love him or hate him and i sort of distinctly sit on the fence when it comes to snyder i gotta be honest the, Watchmen, I didn't have any sort of massive investment in it. I'd read the book years before and enjoyed the book, but it, it always been one of these things that I'd always read that was like unfilmable. And so then I was like, well, sort of kudos to you for doing it. Like you say, when when you start bringing out different versions and stuff like that, some, you know, like you would say in like the, the, the sort of director's cut and stuff like that, yeah, are superior. But the actual theatrical re- release when I watched it, I was, I, I'll agree with Noah it was probably the best version of that film you were going to get. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, like you say, um, Batman v Superman obviously is a fiasco. Justice League, I kind of give a bit of slack with that because of you know we've seen what's happened since, and you know Sucker Punch, absolute fucking gash. Let's be completely honest, in the rubbish. <laughs> like you said, I've, I've watched it once. Oh yeah. you, I can't remember. I can remember very little about it. I don't want to remember anything about it. It's it's kind. Of, I think it's kind of like as if they said to a horny twelve-year-old boy. Use, use a couple of hundred, you know, use a couple of million dollars, go and make a kick-ass action film. Yeah, what I was going to say, I think if you sat down and had a drink with um, with him, I think I think you'd actually find a genuine lover of film there. But that does that doesn't mean that he's an auteur. That doesn't mean that he's you know a, the, you know the wonder kid that we all need to get behind. I think there's someone there who's got a good visual flair. Mm. Going back to the Man of Steel comments that the Bill was making, I completely agree with him that. But I also think that came on the back of. Uh, Superman Returns, when it was almost like a sort of homage to the the Superman movies of old with the Christopher Reeve stuff, and then he sort of like got the idea of mm. oh, we're going to do a sort of more hard edge, gritty sort of Superman. Obviously, you had the Nolan influence, what he'd done with Batman. Nolan was a producer there, and again, it's almost as if someone said just didn't put the brakes on with him enough and didn't say, look, you know, Zach, okay, I appreciate what you're doing, but let's just wind it in a little bit. I do think a lot of the time with him, he's, he's one of those guys where, ironically, with tonight's film, I'm going to say, yeah, give him free reign, let him do what he wants to do. But I think with the sort of bigger sort of budget productions, when you're dealing with iconic characters, you've got to sort of almost take into account that you can put your spin on it, but there's also a lot of weight behind it because there's a lot of people who are heavily invested in these characters, especially with like Superman. You could have someone like our age, you could say, look, for the last 40 years, I've been a fan of this character. Don't ruin it. Well, I think this is his first, you know, this is his second film, which hasn't been a direct adaptation of an existing property. Obviously, Dawn of the Dead was a remake. Yeah. Uh, 300 and Watchmen with adaptations of, you know, existing graphic novels. And then obviously all of his DC stuff, without stating the obvious, his adaptations of DC comic stuff. He's going back to directing original IP. Uh, you know, without giving too much away about my opinion of the film we're about to talk about, I want to see more of this from Zack Snyder. I don't want to see Zack Snyder's, you know, very specific style take on existing IP because I think that is where he's going to hit a lot of stumbling blocks where he sort of butts heads with people's expectations people have got that like you say Bill it's not necessarily the adaptation of Watchmen you wanted because obviously it's a book that you're you know, obviously very familiar with and you had in your mind how you would like to see that put up on the big screen and Snyder's style I think is so strong that if you're in any way not with that style then i think you know you, you're always going to have a particular problem with his adaptation of any sort of franchise which is either well known or beloved or, or personal to you you know lindelof's um hbo series he did of watchmen 
um, was much like Zack Snyder. You know, it, it, it was an adaptation of something that didn't have the flavor of the Alan Moore comic, but it still worked. Like, tonally, it served the purpose well. And again, I don't want... The whole point of doing an adaptation is that I already have the book in front of me. I could read the book all I want. I want to see something new. I want to see an adaptation. Change it. That's okay. I don't need you to just take all the bones and transplant them 100%. Give me something that you did, that you were inspired. Make a feature film out of it. So, I mean, these things are possible. Again, Linda Love did this for HBO. And, you know, it, it tonally it might have had the same feel of Watchmen, but it moved it forward in a very um, successful way, whereas maybe... Snyder doesn't have that same ability to adapt things. Who knows? I don't know. I think mm. it's a bit of an unfair comparison, really, because Lindelof's version of The Watchmen is, is set after The Watchmen. Do, do you get what I'm saying? So Yeah, yeah, sure, I think, sure. I, I, think, I think, you know, Snyder was given the, the, the Alan Moore book and said, right, make a movie out of that, then. Everyone says they can't do it, make a movie out of that. And to, to a some degree, he pulled it off, I think, anyway. Oh, I look. I'm. I, I'm just going to refer back to the piece I wrote for Form Eighty Nine. I, I. I will not. I can't change my opinion on that because it's just an opinion that I. I I've had. I think pretty much since day one of watching the film, and it, it was solidified with watching the director's cut, because I went into that film without, you know, a sort of deep seated love of the book at the time. Because I think if I if I'd read it just before seeing the film, it was literally weeks before seeing it. I I kind of went in fresh, and if anything. I think the issue is that, you know, you say, Bill, you don't want a direct adaptation of the book. Well, people like me, I think, maybe need a direct adaptation of the book. People who are not familiar with it intimately. Sure. And I think that's why maybe the, the film works so well for me as opposed to someone like yourself. And and, and, and people like Hayden and, and John Arminio, who obviously did an episode on, you know, the, the, the general Watchmen mythos and weren't particularly enamored with Snyder's film. I hear you. Before we pivot off of Snyder, you know, it, it, it gets me thinking that we, if podcasting had existed 21 years ago or 22 years ago, we could be having this exact conversation about Ridley Scott. And, you know, mm. Ridley Scott and uh, Zack Snyder, the parallels always seem very apparent to me. And, but no one's no one's really talks about them so much. But Ridley Scott, much like Zack Snyder, came out of an advertising background. He was a, you know, a man who was, you know, in, in the in the was it late 60s, early 70s, was an, was an, a self-taught genius visually with uh, creating commercials and adverts in, in the UK. And, you know, and he made that Apple computer commercial like he broke through visually. Uh, before he got into feature filmmaking with the duelists, you know, and like in a, in a lot of ways, that's what Zack Snyder did. Zack Snyder, I forget, he went to school in California, I think, and then did a lot of commercials and, you know, by the dint of charisma and just the sheer force of how he was able to build adverts, was able to get a feature film career, which I think he wanted the entire time. And likewise, when you start watching the crumbling of Ridley Scott, you can make the same, almost at the same point in his career, although Ridley Scott's career is much more, has much, much more longevity than Zack Snyder's. I think they fall apart in the, in the same ways, maybe for the same reasons. There, there, there's this adherence to the visual, which is great because I mean, he's given Ridley Scott gave us some of the greatest visuals ever. But I also think Ridley Scott's movies begin to crumble over the coherence of the narrative and the understanding of characters and actors and the ability to put together two hours of film in a compelling way that will keep an audience there. 
uh, Ridley Scott, I think some of his efforts, you know, the ones that don't go here, it's because they lack authenticity. It's because they lack something that sticks with you. They lack people and characters that you care about. Um, and maybe this idea that he just figures, oh, it's okay, I'll make, you know, I, I can I can save this with visuals. You know, and every now and then you get a movie like Matchstick Man, which I personally think was Ridley Scott's last great movie. And I think that was 2000 or 1999. It was a long time ago, but it was great. It was just a human drama with people. It was a, you know, con game. Uh, you know, he keeps making movies and calling the shot. Then you get things like The Martian, you get, which isn't bad, but I'm saying it's not great. You get things like Prometheus, you get things like Covenant, you get things like The Counselor. And I mean, you could maybe think that Zack Snyder is going to go this route. You can maybe look at Ridley Scott and say that is a um, an auger for what uh, Zack Snyder's career is going to turn into after a while. Yeah, I you know I agree that I don't think that Snyder's career, you know, if it carries on like it is, going to have the same longevity as Ridley Scott. I will say that Ridley Scott's career has been a lot more varied in terms of you know you could pick two different Ridley Scott films and play them side by side and not know that they're made by the same director. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. But then there's certain films like you could watch Blade Runner, then you could watch Black Rain, and there are obvious signs in Black Rain, uh, your visual influences, that cue back to to Blade Runner. Sure. Zack Snyder's films, I, I think there's a much more tighter margin of, of, of differentiation between Snyder's films. You know, they're all kind of, you, you look at them straight away, you see the slow-mo or, or you know the the overuse of slow mo and and the stylistic stuff like that, and it's quite obviously a Zack Snyder film. Do you know what? That's a, something I'd never really considered before, Bill. But you're bang on the money with that. But again, siding with Sky completely there. Like you say, with a Scott film, you kind of you have got that sort of differential. With a Snyder film, you could sit down and put me in front of a Snyder film. I'm pretty confident that I, if if it was a new movie and you said who directed that, that I could nail it with Snyder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you say, because it, it is all visual, isn't it? It is, you know, like certain things he just does in every film. And you just like. But then there's films like I Think The Martian, which I, I watch The Martian and it doesn't feel like a Ridley Scott film. Yeah, that's true. In the same way that. What's another example? I'd say that Munich doesn't feel like a Spielberg film as we know it. Yeah, yeah, Bridge of Spies doesn't feel like a Spielberg film. I'm with you. I get yeah, you. Yeah, even. Get... Yeah. Yeah, even though we'd obviously seen Schindler's List, which, you know, again, kind of changed what we thought a Spielberg film could be. I think, yeah, when it came to a film like Munich, that never felt like a Spielberg film. And most of his films prior to that always had a, a kind of feeling, like an identifiable thing that you could say, yeah, that, that that feels like a Spielberg film. Munich never did. And I think certain films that Scott has done don't feel like really Scott films. And then other films, which he's done, have outright surprised me. I thought, what the hell does he think he's doing? Films like Alien Covenant. Uh, you know, I think you know if Snyder, you know, in a, in a shorter, uh, less varied career, has made some big missteps with stuff like Sucker Punch and Batman vs Superman, I think you could say on a bigger scale, you know, across a, a far wider career, ranging back to was it was Duelist seventy seven? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Scott has made some pretty big missteps, and he's actually made missteps where he's kind of trod dog shit into his own franchise by <laughs> by messing up the Alien franchise, which he started back in '79. I thought, you know, it, it makes me think like you know, I just want to grab the guy and say, "What are you doing? You know, you've made such incredible films yet." Sometimes I, I I think I don't know you really, Scott. I can't get into your head and into the way you're thinking as to why you're looking at this franchise and thinking that this is the way to take it. You know, having two Davids in a five-minute scene of one teaching the other one to play the flute. What on earth? You know? <laughs> well, what Scott the hell was that this, about? You watch this guy now in Christ. He's pushing 80. He's over 80. I mean, he's, he's an old man now, but he still sits yeah. there with 
He's got that ball cap and that salt and pepper beard. And he's got this gigantic Cuban cigar. And he shows up like, you know, uh, king shit of fuck mountain, you know. And his thing is like, I'm Ridley Scott. <laughs> I am here to run a movie because I'm I'm Mr. Blackhawk Down. I'm Mr. 1492. You know, I'm Mr. Legend. I came out with, I've got this thing. It goes on and on and on. You know, I think at this point, when you get to his age, no one's going to tell him he can't because he's a genius going back to the 70s. Doesn't matter whether or not he's got the the runway to prove it today. Uh, you know, he's got this legacy credibility to bank on. But again, the modern version of Ridley Scott's not going to be able to do that because the, the time frame and the silo we live in, everything is much faster. Everything lasts shorter. And, you know, no one sees things outside of a silo. So Zack Snyder can't possibly reach the same pan-cultural heights that Ridley Scott had at his peak yeah i agree i agree yeah he, he his career is operating in a totally different time to to what scott's did so let's talk about the film let's talk about army of the dead the opening so the film opens with an army convoy carrying an important cargo which we soon discover is a zombie uh, that convoy gets into some trouble resulting in the creature escaping and obviously guys i, I take it that you have picked up on the blatant american werewolf in london homage in that opening scene Oh, actually, I didn't. Please, please uh, explain. Well, you've, you've got the two characters who escape. They, they can hear the, the, the kind of howls of the creature. And then one kind of falls over. And and I think, is it um, is it David Norton? No, not David Norton. What's the other guy? The guy from After Hours? Griffin Dunn. Um, Griffin Dunn. Griffin yeah, Griffin, Dunn. Like, Griffin Dunn's character. Or is it the other way around? David Norton's character falls over. Griffin Dunn's character is the one stood over him saying, come on, you jackass, get yeah. up. And it's at that point that the wolf pounces. Yes. Just like in this film, we see exactly the same thing. And I think nearly was Jim Cottle that pointed out to he, us as he was watching it. He did. It's the second time he's done it. He did it with uh, Kong v. Uh, Godzilla as well. He made the Diab yeah. reference. I'm quite impressed with how all Jim's brain medicine's working though lately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was a really blatant reference. And as we'll come to later... Um, I think Snyder's love of films in general does need a bit of reining in because there are so many obvious references to other films, films that we've all grown up with because he's a kind of similar age to us. These references are hardly subtle. So I think this was the first one. Then this kind of alpha zombie converts these two soldiers and then they make their way to Las Vegas, which then leads into pretty special opening credit sequence that, you know, as far as I can tell, seems to be getting unanimous praise from everyone who's talking about the film, irrespective of their opinion on the film as a whole. Now, Snyder's given us a pretty amazing opening credit sequence in Watchmen. What did you guys think of the opening montage, opening credit scene to Army of the Dead? Um, I'm going to reference up, <laughs> because you have a complete <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah. The opening titles, but... As impressed as I am with that, it's not the first time that a zombie film... It was really good. I'm not knocking it, okay? But all the praise is getting. Yeah. And everyone keeps going on about, like, this is fantastic. It's almost like a self-contained film in the titles and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But I'm pretty sure they did that in both the Zombieland films as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do that. You're right. So, yeah, yeah, right. But, but that's not that's not taking anything away from the opening titles because, like I say, with the opening titles, I know there's already talk. There's going to be like a prequel am animation series, and they're on about doing like a, a TV show based on this. And you know, Netflix have got the rights to everything now. That's got an army of the dead attached to it. But I did actually think when I was watching the opening titles, that could have been almost like a sort of little Rocky homage where you have the sort of the the last film condensed into thirty seconds or a minute to the yeah. beginning of the new film. What I was going to say to that, prior to the American Werewolf stuff, did you notice the two lights in the sky? I didn't, Neil. I didn't notice them. Oh, and it's only no, when I was no. doing a little bit of prep 
that I heard that the special effects team had put two little lights in the sky above the army base that is supposed supposedly supposed to be Area 51. So, no, I didn't notice it. I didn't notice at the time. What I did notice was two lights in the sky, and I thought, because I knew he was director of photography, I thought, oh, he's doing lens flare in this, is he? And that's mm. what I thought it was. And as the film went on, there was loads of sort of like glaring sort of lens flare, which I was like... All oh, right, we're referencing J.J. Abrams as well, though, as well, you know, because it was like that sort of... Mm. Well, but, there's uh, a textual reference to Area 51 where the two guys in the convoy say, well, you know where yeah. this came from, because, hey, we don't talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, and this is something I was going to say to later with when we come to it, but in case we kind of don't directly hit on this, I, there was a point later on in the film where recalling that earlier scene, you know, the opening scene with the two army guys saying that it's coming from Area 51, I wonder what it is, and the guy said, you know, do I have to say alien? Yeah. There's a movement and a, a kind of feel to these zombies, certainly the alpha zombies later on in the film, especially the kind of queen zombie and the, the way that she moves, that made me think, I ho- I'm hoping now that in order to kind of inject a bit of originality into, you know, a, a subgenre that we have seen done to death, you know, certainly in the last kind of 10, 15 years, wouldn't it be great if they showed the genesis of this outbreak as coming from outer space, which in itself would hark back to the beginning with George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. It, was, where, it certainly would, yes. Yeah, it came from, um, was it a space probe or something like that? Yes, a returning space you know, probe. Wouldn't it be great if things came full circle and, and it turns out that this actually came from, you know, the contents of a UFO or something else which came you know, from outer space. Because I've always thought of, you know, this zombie outbreak as, as being you know, a kind of man-made thing, like a biological weapon gone wrong. You know, and this is something that loads of other different films and franchises like the Resident Evil games, have, they've taken hold of that as their way of explaining how this comes to life. But, you know, I thought, yeah, let them go down that route. But it, it was kind of never resolved. And I think it was set up in a way that I think it could have been resolved just to kind of put a point on saying, yeah, these are extraterrestrial in origin. And certainly the way the creatures moved, there was something very alien about them. I, I just think that's something, that, a bit of a missed opportunity Snyder didn't follow up on. Jumping way ahead of myself, this is one of the main criticisms I've got of this movie, is that prior to this, I think I'd done a, an article for the site or something like that when it first got announced and Netflix were teaming up with him, that they had all these sort yeah. of spin-offs and you know, sequels and prequels and treacles and God knows what going on. And there's a lot in this film where you go, Oh, that doesn't really have an answer. Oh, they haven't really explained that. And it's oh, just that little cynical sort of side to me that watches this film and goes, "You're trying to build up a universe on the first movie." You know, it's like <laughs> there was a few. <laughs> there's a few things with this where you know, with his little run with DC, you'd have thought he'd have picked up on this is not the way to do things. There's a few sort of elements with this film where I'm like, "You're not answering any questions," or "This character's going off, and I don't really know their fate," or. And it's almost as if, like, oh, you, you're already giving me, oh, you'll find out that I like the date. I don't really want to see that. And like I say, with the beginning bit, with the, the lights in the sky, I thought they were lens flare. And I know there's all the thing now that it's going to be from Alien. And like you were saying, there's going back now, this will come full circle and stuff like that. That'd be great. That'd be great if I found it out at a later date. I don't need to have these unanswered questions in a movie now. Yeah. Yeah, this film needs to stand on its own. And that's one of the major criticisms I've got of this movie. There's a lot of things in this film where it's almost like a sort of like a knowing nod. I'd be like, well, you'll find out on a later date. Oh, you know, the sequel's coming. Oh, if you watch the anime version, I don't need to read the book afterwards to understand the movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you you kind of want, Neil, don't you? Uh, um, if this is going to be the start of a franchise, it also has to stand on its own two feet as a standalone thing in its own right, just in case that franchise doesn't, you know, evolve into anything else. We've, yeah. we've talked about it before with other films. It's just a sort of almost like a... 
it's a curse of the MCU, I think, will later become the, the sort of thing we'll refer to it as. Because prior to MCU properties, a film got a sequel or got a spin-off or got a prequel because the first film was a, a standout film. And yeah. nowadays, it seems like people are trying to sort of put too many Easter eggs into the, the, the initial product, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking that, you know, this is one of those movies, because um, we have a lot of baggage with zombie movies. I mean, that could be fatigue, it could be baggage, whatever you want to call it. But I think that, um, for the most part, I mean, there have been a lot of zombie movies, a lot of zombie media in pop culture between video games and TV shows and movies and things of the like, um, fiction, etc., comic books. They all kind of um, refer back to the same idea that this is an unknowable origin. Even the best of them along the way give you very hazy um you know, legit, uh, you know, trying to legitimize why this is happening. And a lot of times you just sort of go with it because it begins in Medius Res and, or you're seeing the very first few minutes of a thing along the way. I, I think what I demand of my creators is that I want them to know the answer. You know, you can tell, you can tell me or hold back as much as you want from, from what you're going to give me. But I think I, you know, I need, I need you to know the answer. I can't have you just coming up with something like the first order and not explaining why the first order isn't the, the, you know, why that's not the empire. What's the difference between the force? Well, obviously they said, we're going to figure that out later. Uh, and that doesn't work for me. And it's like, likewise, I, I, you know, I just want Zack Snyder to know, I want him to confirm to me that he knows what this is. Also, you know, something weird about this movie is that usually when you're given a zombie apocalypse, it's the end of all life on Earth at the same time. And this is one of the only examples I've ever seen where it's localized to one metropole that has been essentially cut off. Usually, you know, you're talking about people shifting through the desert, stealing gasoline, looking for bags of Wonder Bread uh, and whatever's left over of the planet Earth. And you get the impression money is still valuable. There's still a stock market. There's still TV channels. People are making eggs and bringing their kids to school in cities around the world. And it's just this one place that's ringed by shipping containers. That's kind of a new a new blush on the thing. And I think that's how it works is because of the fact that he picked Las Vegas, basically an isolated city in the middle of the desert. And that kind of gave him opportunity to explain that unlike other cities in, here in America, you could have an outbreak here and it could you know more easier than any other city be contained viable to be able to contain this sure. in the way that they did yeah 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 like you say like you say but i was thinking exactly the same it's quite a sort of unique take on it i don't think we've ever seen it as such because it's usually like you say it's either like a united fight or like you say it's always that sort of dystopian sort of mad max aftermath isn't it yeah 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 right yeah so you know the film opens and what is the time jump between that sort of kind of opening showing the you know the you know the fall of Las Vegas and then it it kind of being walled off what is the time jump between the point of that and then when we see uh, Dave Bautista's character flipping burgers well i don't think the daughter is it, the, it was the same actor playing the daughter in the um slow mo time dilation footage of the uh, uh, of the opening mm. credits and then when she's actually inside the camp uh, helping refugees out so i assume that I mean, obviously, when you're fudging actors casting, that could be anywhere between six months, a year, maybe two years. So I don't think it's like, you know, it was long enough. Let's put it this way. It was long enough for them to decide that the next bit of news on a national scale is that they're going to drop this tactical nuke on it. So whatever mm. whatever kind of like decision making it would take for the United States government to come up with that in movie logic, that's probably as long. So that, that could have been six months. 
That could have been three months. Who the hell knows? Or, or assuming it was set in the real world and Donald Trump was the president at the time, it could have been a couple of days. <laughs> it could have been a couple of days. Yeah, actually, well, he, and, built, he built a wall pretty quick, you know, in fairness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? There, there's, um, there's actual text from the people on TV saying the president thought, he said something like, it could be cool. It would actually be it, yeah. patriotic, you know? So that well, is indicating yeah. they're, they're describing the president who they thought the president was. It immediately sounded like Trump. At one point, it was Sean Spicer who was doing the, the sort of talking head stuff yeah donna brazil who is his counter on the on the democrat side yeah they hired them both to be actors in this thing yeah yeah obviously we go from there to hiroyuki sanada who turns out is the the kind of um casino hotel boss and he he, he puts batita's character up to the the, the task of uh, assigning a group of mercenaries of his choice to go into uh, this walled off las vegas that's full of zombies and and steal or, or recover 200 million dollars in cash and he was going to give him he was going to give him 50 million to go and get it which i i thought was an unfair split <laughs> yeah the, the kind of you know second act so it is or, or or the kind of majority of the first act kind of becomes a, a kind of assembling the dirty dozen style thing which we've seen in countless films before but it's always something I'm, i always gravitate towards and i like seeing teams assembled even though you know, as it turns out, a lot, a lot of these characters don't kind of live up to, you know, the, you know. there's an unashamed homage to aliens in this film. Yeah, you could and, say and that. Yeah. yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of these characters are anywhere near um, as iconic as characters like Hicks and Hudson and Vasquez. Uh, and even lesser characters like Drake, I, I don't think that... But I, I definitely think the Snyder is trying to give us that. Um, I, I think maybe he gave us one or two many characters, and I think he could have pared it down to a tighter group just to get us to you know, know those characters more intimately. But I did like that portion of the film of him assembling a team, whether or not, you know, he took those, you know, a lot of those team members to, you know, a, a memorable place. You know, I don't know. But yeah, you know, that, that was kind of the first act of the film. And, and then it, it kind of, I think for me, the, the, the film kind of peaked early. And then, you know, the rest of the film, in a lot of ways, was kind of ticking the boxes. And I think my attention was more drawn to the technical side of things. Because, like I say, one of the things I like that he did with Dawn of the Dead is give it a more epic scope um, over Romero's film. And I think from a point of view of scope here, in terms of visuals, you know, I know a lot of the CG effects do look like CG, but I think for a $70 million budgeted film, he makes a hell of a lot of that money go further than a lot of directors could. Um, yeah, you could be right about that. I, I, Like you said, I have an issue with the fact that the CG is so seeable, it's so visible, it's so apparent. Yeah, it's very CGable. Yeah, it's very CGable. I mean, this this was shot. Mm. I'm assuming on a gravel-strewn lot somewhere in uh, New Mexico. I think is where we actually did the location. But any time there's a vista, anytime there's horde shots of you know you, you, the camera cranes over the shipping containers and you see these zombies, you know, by the tens of thousands. And he might be using the same algorithm that Weta used to animate the the art with the orc armies, you know, back 20 years ago, or some mm. some variant thereof to draw a lot of people moving in sort of random random circles. Um, but even when you get in closer, it's a lot. By the way, I think the budget was 90, wasn't it? I mean, not that the, what the hell difference is to make the 20 million. That's that's all salaries as far as I know. But uh, either way, you're talking about when it comes time for close quarter combat. Uh, one of the big issues I had in terms of it being visible and seeable and CGable is that I, I brought this up on Twitter the other day. I put up a screen cap of um, what was clearly CG muzzle flare out of the out of the weapons when they were shooting mm, the dark yeah. in the dark hallways. 
And uh, some people came back at me and they said, you know, th this is a real triumph for um, weapons handlers because you don't you no longer have the danger of live blank ammunition, which is, you know, somebody said, what would uh, Brandon Lee have done had you just had, you know, CGI muzzle flare when they made the crow? He'd be alive because he wouldn't have been hit by a starter pistol around. And it's like, that's actually true. And someone else said, you know, when the, when they have the technical arms experts on set, these guns are still prone to jamming and locking and all sorts of things that fuck up the take. So you have perfect, uh, you know, acquittal of fire control every single time. You get the muzzle flare you want, the report. It's, the timing is absolutely, um, and, and, you know, the aim of where it goes. So I understand the uh, idea of doing it is it makes the a lot safer it makes it aesthetically perfect but at the same time i feel like you can absolutely tell that oh 100 yeah. bill yeah 100 i was gonna yeah. say with, with that bill there's sort of two arguments there and like you say the sort of safety aspects that you've mentioned there you can't really argue with can you no i, I right, let's, yeah. let's be completely straight does it look as good? Uh, it doesn't, but I can think of right. two actors. I can think of, uh, what is it? John Eric Hexham died in the early 80s by playing Russian roulette with a starter pistol and a piece of a fragment the same way as it did. No, actually, it was the gas. It was the expanding gas. Yeah. He shot himself in the head. And the same thing, Brandon Brandon Scott Lee, or no, Brandon Lee was killed uh, by a fragment of a blank. You know, that just... Yeah, but yeah. Bill, these, you know, they're, they're two tragic examples in... Out of Tens of thousands of films. And again, I'm not. I'm not trying to make any light to this again. But you see, if you look at the safety aspects, like you say, we we could argue. All right, there's two tragic accidents out of like say, let's say a hundred thousand type of productions of those types. Yeah, when when you consider guys that John Woo was probably in his films fired off more rounds than you know, most <laughs> world wars, and and no one died then. Let's put it this way: you can film Rocky in the seventies. Yeah, with some prosthetic makeup and two guys rehearsing, or you can f yeah. film Creed two in two thousand and eighteen. Which fight looks better? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Also, <laughs> that's, they, that's true. They that's didn't true. ban helicopters after they killed Vic Morrow on the set yeah. of Twilight no. movie. You know exactly. Yeah, I'm not making like of anyone's death, but you know, it just doesn't look as good. No. Let's be honest. <laughs> it doesn't. Right. You know, you you just think back, right? And again, you know, this is a film that's already come up on this discussion already. It's going to come up again. Let's look back at Aliens, nineteen eighty six, with Sigourney Weaver holding on to that M41A pulse rifle and firing those rounds off into those alien queen eggs and the fact that that is a real gun firing, you know, as much as a blank firing, but it's a real gun. There's real kind of ricochet and, and there's that kind of shaking effect. And, you know, the, the muzzle flash is real. You know, let's look at Robocop's Auto 9. That muzzle flash is real. And, you know, there's a gun technician who's, who's designed this, you know, Beretta 9 3R and, 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 and carefully, you know, cut the, you know, the gas chambers into this extended muzzle to make that look as as realistic and awesome as possible as any number of film guns that we could talk about Neil you know one of our kind of favorite cult films Dark Angel with that incredible hand cannon you know that Matthias Hughes has got I don't think that this reliance on CG gun muzzle flashes and and head explosions it just still doesn't look real because it's not real and and again, it's it's not like you say. We, we you know, but there's other things like you say. It's like the sort of yeah. the, 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 squib, yeah. The, yeah. the squibs going off and stuff like that. You know, yeah. You know, even if we sort of took the safety aspect out of the gun thing, and then you, you know, you can't argue. We could talk. We could probably name ten thousand productions that have got gun muzzle flare on it, and then you just bring up mm -hmm. Brandon Lee, and you go, "All right, you got a point," because no one should have to you know suffer for their you know for their to that extent. But like you say, the practical effects of other things as well sometimes. It's almost like, um, not a cheat, but it's almost like people become too reliant on CG, don't they? Yeah. 
if you're going to talk about in terms of that, let's look at how many guys got thrown from horses in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, <laughs> and westerns, and how many of them died when it's done properly. You know, when you've got people that's properly choreographing stuff like the chariot racing Ben Hur, and they're actually really being dragged under horses and they're not dying then, you know, it, it can be done right. And I'm always going to lean towards that kind of realistic thing. And there is an over-reliance of CG effects here. It's Raiders v. Crystal Skull. There you are. There you go. There you go. <laughs> what, what would what would Vic Armstrong say? He'd say, yeah, put the, put the computer away. I'll do this for real, you know? <laughs> is, he still, if he's, is he still alive? I don't know. I'm pretty sure, sure. Still, I'm I pretty sure he even if he's not, if he's in a retirement home somewhere, I'm pretty sure Vic Armstrong would say that now. <laughs> I could do that, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, kind of from there on in, you know, for me, the, the film, it, it did kind of peak early. Uh, what what do you think of the film in terms of the cast? Because it is quite a big cast. For me, not many familiar faces. Do we think Snyder was successful there in, in kind of creating a, a cast that in decades to come will be kind of heralded in the same regard as films which he's trying to homage like Aliens? Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, then again, you know, there was a stock company of like uh, Galleon Hurd, uh, William Wisher actors who came out of Aliens, you know, who went on beyond that. And there were a couple of people who were known before it. But, you know, Snyder has this ability to get some really good actors, um, which obviously means that, first of all, actors and their representatives watch his movies. And so they know what they're getting into. But also, I'm assuming that actors talk to each other about working with Snyder and say, yes, this is a decent director. You want to work with him because he never lacks for um, star power. And his casting on all of his movies, you can never knock this guy for casting. I mean, I would say that I personally don't think that Cavill is the best choice for Superman, but I know a lot of my friends will push back on that. I think Cavill is charisma-free. But other than that, mostly his casting has been pretty good along the line. So this movie, I mean, I do recognize a bunch of these character guys. You know, Omari Hardwick was in um, that Boots Riley movie, and he's pretty good. Batista is a guy right now who's having a moment. Uh, Theo Rossi was in the Marvel comic shows on uh, Netflix, you know? Yeah, he yeah. was in uh, Luke, Luke Cage. Luke Cage, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, really good character actor, really good New York guy. Uh, Hiroyuki Sonata, again, he just came, well, he was in the uh, Mortal Kombat movie that came out, but he's also in the comic book sphere at the moment. Garrett Dillahunt, who is one of my favorite character guys going back to Deadwood. He's an HBO guy. Um, yeah. he, he banged. He was in the Terminator TV show on Fox, the Sarah Con- Sarah Connor Chronicles. You hit the nail on the head with that. But that's what I was going to reference. Right, right. He Crow Marty, the, the headless Terminator. Yeah, this, uh, and it's like uh, Tignataro coming in here. You know, you want uh, uh, the story about casting. I think actually is really interesting. And and yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. When it comes to Tignataro, yeah, I had no idea. Right, and the weird thing is, it is both really chilling and also incredibly ingenious at the same time that this worked, and no mm. one, no one really knows about it, but. For the sake of for the sake of yeah, revelation, unless you were looking for it, you wouldn't have noticed, would you? Right. I, I had no idea whatsoever when I read in the you know the trivia pages on INDB the fact that well, go on, Bill, I'll let you, I'll let you tell the story. Oh yeah, well they filmed this entire movie with an actor, uh, a stand-up comedian, a guy uh, named Chris Dealey, an LA guy. Who I mean, talk about stepping into a giant pile of shit. I mean, the guy was accused, I think, of um, statutory rape. Uh, and it's just one of those things where this whole movie was in the can, and this guy was just at that point unworkable. He was, he was not viable. And so I think in this weird era of uh, Christopher Plummer taking over for Kevin Spacey, they were able to, I think it was like a week of shooting, Tignataro came in. So you're talking about changing the, the gender of the character. You're talking about changing the physicality of the character. You're talking about changing a lot of things. That's also dialogue, because every part, the Peters was a man in the first draft of the movie, and Peters became a she in the second draft of the movie. 
movie. So all the dialogue that had pronouns was 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 ADR'd to she and not he, which you really can't read on the lips. But neither either way, it's just another technical consideration. So Tignataro did like a, a week of shooting against green screens and some practical sets with Zack Snyder alone and some stand-ins. She never met any members of the crew. She met them at the premiere. She has no idea what she doesn't mm. have met Dave Batista. She didn't meet any of these other actors. She just worked with Zack Snyder. And like I said, you can think of it like you could remove any actor from any movie now and cast somebody else. And, you know, you could say that an actor does their best work when they're responding to other people in the moment. Or you can say that you could literally just move pieces around like plugs and, you know, wipe this guy out, bring this person in if you just green screen them because they can just slot in in, in the digital vista we're looking at right now. It's kind of weird, man. Yeah, like you, like you say, with, with a sort of Snyder effect, it's, it, 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 it does seem to be, I've never heard any actor say they don't want to work with him again. And if you look at the sort of, like, I, I know there was a sort of, sort of certain sort of toxic element of the Snyder Cut sort of movement. But not him, though. But nothing to do with him. And uh, like you no. say, and if you look at all the sort of main actors who were involved in the Justice League, we're all sort of supporting him all the way through that, really, weren't they? Every time he'd release, like, I don't know, like a sort of a little snippet of, like, um, the black Superman suit or, you know, whatever. You know, all of them, Momoa, Cavill, though they'd all sort of jump on Instagram and sort of repost it and stuff like that, which you don't usually see, do you? No. You know, especially not a sort of property, like a a sort of franchise like that, where I would imagine Warner Brothers are literally saying to those people, look, don't rock the boat because we're, you know, there might be a possibility of like Man of Steel 2 coming out. You know, if you if you go on Twitter and you um, check hashtags for, you know, hashtag Zack Snyder on Twitter and Insta, uh, all of his actors, all the stunt people, everyone on the crew, they love to spread as much as they're allowed to. They can't put out too much information, but they show very, you know, discreet images of the fact that they were working on this and that they were on set and they had a really good relation and they became, you know, big boosters of it. And again, that's one of the best forms of evangelism is creating a personal relationship with the fans via the acting, via the crew, via the uh, people who, you know, the department heads. And they all do that. They all love representing for Zack Snyder. Yeah. yeah, and like 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 you were saying with like Tignatero as well, you know, sort of working alone with him and stuff like that. It, there were sort of stories like that coming up, weren't there, with the with the with the Snyder cut um, reshoots that he was sort of doing on his driveway with like Ben Affleck and stuff, you know, behind yeah. the green screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like mm-hmm. you say, you've got to get a certain amount of respect from your actors, to, you know, to want to do that, to, to come back and do stuff, you know. Yeah. And that's why I say I always think with him, I can understand why people knock him. But I think you know there's a good heart there, isn't there? No matter what, no matter what you think of the, oh, God, the end yeah. project, I think there's a good heart there. Yeah, and you know, I, I think he, he is a nice guy. He, he's kind of on the level, and I think it must have been a bit of a tough burden to carry when he saw a lot of the horrible backlash, you know, from certain people on social media whose conduct regarding the you know the release of the Snyder Cut was less than savoury, and you know they were they were kind of allegations. A lot of them were some of the less um, tolerant members of society, and I, I think you know maybe he's. He's, he would have already done it anyway, but I think this is definitely a very balanced cast. There's there's a lot of representation in terms of gender and ethnicity, and you know there's no character that I outright disliked, unless you know the intention was for me to dislike them. Like Theo Rossi's character from the start is just an absolute pig. He's he's just you know completely unlikable. But then you know you've got characters like Dita, you know you know the the safe cracker. And I gotta say it. One of the reasons I was most surprised that you know Tignataro's character was 
kind of shoehorned into the film is because I think alongside maybe Nora um, and Zayda's character of Lily, they are my two favourite characters in the film. Mm -hmm. I've seen her play the kind of acerbic sort of wisecracking, you know, character several times now. But I think the way she played this character from her opening thing of, hey, look, my life's completely shit. I hate my life. <laughs> if you're going to offer me $2 million now, I'm not even going to ask what the job is. And I, I, from like straight away, I liked her. I thought, yeah, I, I like her. Um, I like the way she's written. I was going to say, I'm not a massive follower of Chris D'Elia. Is it D'Elia or D'Elia? D'Elia, D'Elia. 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 I've seen some of his uh, stand-up stuff, and he was big on the sort of podcast circuit with the sort of Rogans and the Brian Callens, who you know, ironically also went down the same route, didn't he? You know, and stuff like that. I'd see him do stuff like that. But ironically, the only thing I'd seen him in acting-wise other than stand-up was the, the series that actually got him in trouble, wasn't it? Because he did the Netflix. <laughs> Wait, was, it, was it you? I think it's called, isn't it, on Netflix? Yes, I believe you're right. When he, when he played the stand-up comedian who was chasing after underage girls. Yeah. Oof. And it was a, it was yeah. after that that the revelations came out about it. But I was like, you know, would you have thought, like, mm. oh, there's method and there's, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? <laughs> I thought she was actually, I've only seen her in a few things, but I thought she was actually doing a very good Chris D'Elia or Delia sort of impression, if you like, mm-hmm. with the way she was phrasing yeah. stuff, you know? It's sort of like, I, I, I liked her, even though I think no discredit to her, but she was given a couple of clunkers. Like, you know, that what a what a piece of junk line, which is blatantly taken from Star Wars, yeah. lifted wholesale. Then you've got the bit where, the, you know, the helicopter engine fails and it's it's the, the sound of the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive not working, that kind of... I'm like, oh, these you know these homages are starting to come thick and fast, and and by by the end, I was like, oh, come on, Zach, rein it in a bit. That's the that's the, yeah, I was gonna say that's the difference between making something where you can put sort of the aliens sort of analogy in comparison. I can see straight away. Yeah, you had your Vasquez yeah. there with the headband on and stuff like that, and stuff like that always reminds me of like sort of like Mortal Kombat, where you're like sort of well, you know, they based that character on John Claude Van Damme, or they based that character on uh, John Carpenter's um, uh, what's it called uh, Big Trouble in Little China, the, the Raiden character. Yeah. yeah, I can I yeah. can kind of get that, but then when you do like sort of direct sort of like piece of junk in the Millennium Falcon thing, it's like, dude, you're not making a fan movie on YouTube, no, no, you, you've got to have a certain amount of cleverness to what you're doing, like you yeah. know. I think the main differentiation, Neil, with this is these are characters who are not in our universe referencing films in the way that Peter Parker in Captain America Civil War is making a reference to, hey guys, remember that really old film, The Empire Strikes Back? He's actually making a reference. And then the stuff that we see afterwards when they're pulling Ant-Man down and, you know, in the way that the Atats were, were brought down, it, it, it's a, it's a well-thought-out, clever, well-gauged homage. This film is literally characters either saying lines wholesale, which are taken from other films. You know, I was half expecting one of the characters to completely lose their shit and at one point shout, game over, game man, over, game man. Over. <laughs> It was just like, oh, Zach, come on, you need a little bit of self-restraint here because... There are moments now where I'm hearing these lines and instead of thinking, oh, yeah, cool, that's Aliens, that's Star Wars, I'm thinking, oh, come on. You've got to be a little bit subtle with it sometimes, haven't you? There was a few things, yeah. like you say, with a little bit too on the nose. Yeah, and then it's balanced by lines like, it's a goddamn zombie tiger, that's crossing the line. She's <laughs> <laughs> just fucking brilliant. You know what line I really liked? I really liked when um, she gets they get into the helicopter and take off for the building. She says, Christ, uh, Scott, what was that, a zombie in a goddamn cape? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know, Snyder, he can do you know funny original dialogue. He doesn't need to be making the, you know, chucking these homages at every kind of five, ten minutes in the film. 
it's one of my main sort of criticisms of him is, and it was much the same as we were talking about the Justice League uh, cut that he did, where you sort of watched it and you went, oh, yeah, he's kind of pulled it back here. Yeah, okay, yeah, great. Oh, yeah. yeah, And then you go, what, a fucking epilogue? No, put the brakes on now, mate. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. that little thing where you think, I know he works closely with his wife and, you know, and stuff like that, but you just think, well, sometimes I wish there was someone there who'd just say to him, that's yeah. really cool, Zach, but let's not put it in the film. <laughs> Neil, Neil, do you know you know you can make that same claim about his Nolan because Nolan makes his movies with his wife and his yeah. wife his wife abets a lot of the decisions and I think that there in each of these cases it's perfect because there's actually a lot of pullback more oversight from someone who was like a you know someone who was a producer who was there to lock down on your worst impulses but I don't think much the same way Nolan does not have that person around on the set I don't think Snyder does either. Yeah, so it's almost like um, probably the, the analogy I used earlier about him disappearing up his own ass all early on in his career is probably a bit harsh. But like you say, he doesn't quite go into the sort of smelling your own farts territory. But yeah. like sometimes you you just wish there was someone. Tarantino was the same as well. There's a few films, me and Sky talked, you know, about Tarantino films where I've gone, oh, I just wish that someone had said, don't do that. Yeah. You know, and it would it would have mm. just been perfect. You know, <laughs> yes, like like maybe cut out twenty minutes of extraneous dialogue from Death Proof, and you might have something, <laughs> you know, more akin to the films he's trying to homage. Does the Hateful Eight really need to be as long and drawn out as it is? You yeah, know, okay. and, and I fully agree with you, Neil. But when you talk about acrimonious divorces, Bill, if it comes to picking between two parents and those parents are Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder, then I am going off to live with Zack Snyder. <laughs> He's just far less pretentious, you, and he's you, a much nicer you know, guy. Sky, yeah. you get you get two Christmases this way, so it's cool. Yeah, but at least, yeah, least Papa Zach will let me stay up late on a Friday night. <laughs> exactly. You know, you know who Snyder could use. Snyder could use like a Gary Kurtz. Uh, I mean, to be serious, it's like you're talking about who reined in the worst impulses of Lucas, who was able to fight, who was a firewall, who was not Rick McCallum. It was Gary Kurtz, and that's why Gary Kurtz only lasted for like a movie and a half. And I think that's Snyder's work as extruded through the adapter sort of fun piece of another person who's there to kind of like, you know, smack him in the side of the cheeks with aftershave to wake him up. And, you know, like that is the best thing you could do for his work. And I just don't, I think we're beyond that point because we're in the age of the streaming auteur now. Yeah. I was, I was going to say in my sort of brief sojourn of trying to, trying to write uh, screenplays and trying to write scripts, I'd always sort of go into uh, thinking this would be fucking cool. And then someone would instantly shoot me down the minute they read it, and I go, oh, "You're right." <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the time when I wrote it, I thought, "This is oh, this is genius. Everyone, will, everyone will love this. this will, you know, everyone, will, you know, they'll adore this." Neil, I look. I've always been a strong supporter of your script for the unfilmed Jaws in Space. <laughs> <laughs> So, guys, right, we've, we've talked about Zack Snyder, the director, Zack Snyder, the writer, and, you know, we, we've kind of leveled a bit of criticism. But let's talk about Zack Snyder, the cinematographer, because I think one film this film has got going for it, aside from issues with some quite obvious CG effects, is the look of the film. Let's look at that opening scene with the, the army convoy. Now, it's my understanding that took five weeks to film because it was kind of like all magic hour photography, and obviously Snyder had to make sure that every you know, shot matched later on in the film. We are seeing a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas and it's pretty much all at daytime. And as we know, filming any special effects heavy film at daytime is always going to make those special effects, you know, fall under, I think, kind of more harsh scrutiny because of the fact that you can't hide it so with you know, low more, light yeah. levels and stuff like that. i got to say it, I think on the whole... Bearing in mind, I have been critical about, you know, a lot of this sort of overuse of stylistic flourishes in other Zack Snyder films. 
you know, I think this one more or less reached as happy a balance as we're going to get from Snyder. Mm, I don't think he's a DP mate, to be honest. Like I say, there was there was a yeah. there was a lot of lens playing. I, like, I can't remember whatever I was watching the other day, and someone referred to him as Jar Jar Abrahams, and that's all the fucking sticks in my head. Yeah, no. he's <laughs> lost. <laughs> but that's, that's, I'm not I'm not saying that the guy is Roger Deakins, but you know, yeah. Listen, if if, if he wanted to do it his way. I, to a certain degree, I, I don't like lens. I don't like the glare and stuff like that. I just think it's really cheap and really tacky, and mm. uh, it just seemed, especially the, the sort of last sort of thirty minutes, because I mentioned it at the beginning of the film, and then it was about midway through the film. I said, "Oh, he's good," you know. And then by the end of the film, like I say, you know, the, the future Mrs. Gaskin was actually mentioned it as well, saying, "Oh, that's getting annoying now." And I was just like, "Well, why are you putting that into this film? It doesn't need to be in here." Yeah, there was. Just someone there just to raid him in a little bit and just say, eh, you know, maybe maybe get somewhere else on board. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, all the all the pictures I've seen of him and all the videos, like he had a custom red, you know, he he shot this on the red camera. Not that we're device nerds around here, but I mean red does a lot of feature film works. It's a very expandable, extensible uh, uh cinema camera. It's got a very very sensitive chip. You can shoot low light. Uh, it handles motion really well. It handles slow motion really well. It's just, you know, one of the brand names like um, Alexa in terms of sh- Ari. I should say Ari Alexa for shooting these kind of films. So, I mean, I saw a lot of footage of him personally. And actually, and there's even one, if you freeze frame, you'll see him in the reflection of a glass manning the camera. And he says, that's as close as you're going to get to a Hitchcock appearance of him in his own movie. But I, I thought that there were two things about his visual style, which stuck out to me. In terms of like, okay, you know, you mentioned Deacons and it's like, well, you know, you don't need to be Deacons to shoot a movie like this. You just need to be clear. Um, you know, you mm. can do a crane shot with a, you know, or at least mimic a crane shot or mimic a uh, drone shot with a big zoom up or a zoom across a crowd. That's great. You don't you don't need to be brilliant to do that sort of thing. Haskell Wexler didn't, you know, you, need, you don't need him on set to do it. But Snyder over relied on the rack focus to the point where it's like I, him using that, that it's a it's a TV streaming era conventionist to use that really shallow depth of field to rack between two focal planes. And, I mean, if he had done it a few times, that would have been great. But it happened often. Anytime the the mood slowed down, every time there was tension, he went right back to that very, very shallow. Open the iris up wide, doing a shallow depth of field where you're just racking the focus between two points. One gun, the tip of the pistol and the guy's face, or the person and the person behind them. And it's like, all right, dude, I get it. You know, you're you're you know you're using these these, you know, a few, a few, you're overusing a few of these cinematic tricks. They're becoming a little bit of a cliche, and you're showing off the fact that you're kind of a neophyte. Because as far as I know, he only did the pickup shot, uh, the pickup work of um, the Snyder cut. He was his own DP on that too. Otherwise, he re- he's relied on professionals for the rest of them. The other thing I will say, and again, this isn't so much him running a camera, but the color grade at the end. You know, some of the muddiness of shooting in the dark. You know, you, you shoot it in the light, but then you 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 color grade it to look like it's gloaming, to look like it's dim light corridors. That's where you get the muzzle flare. That's where you get the things that cover up the CG and, and you know, like increase the extra count because you can make 100 extras behind five actors. And that's where that stuff comes in. You need a color grade that makes it muddy in order to amplify that stuff. So I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a big fan of, you know, like modern color grading because I think it's kind of a disaster. But, you know, this, this looked like a Netflix movie along with the rest of the pack in that respect. 
And I think, Bill, from a technical point, he did back himself into a corner because, you know, in the, the Netflix making of documentary, he goes on about how he used those 1960s Canon Dream lenses, which had been repurposed and built into new housings, which he, he bought off eBay. Yeah. And yeah. You know, yeah. they gave the film a, a very sort of soft, focused look. But like you say, Bill, there was a lack of a depth of, of a field to, to the photography. And when you're filming a lot of those dark scenes in the hotel interiors, then it's it's kind of it's working against him. Like I say, I don't think we're not going to be heralding his work in the same way as the likes of Roger Deakins. God no. No, but what I will what I will say is, God damn, that man can film action, mind you, because it was a few of the sort of like the sort of close yes. quarter fight scenes. Because the one the one scene with Batista where he's doing his almost little Drax thing with a knife, fighting oh, that yeah. sort of yeah. alpha zombie, and I was like, yeah, in lesser hands that would have been shaky cam and film. For, yeah, and it was almost like a it was almost like one shot. And it was a wide mm, shot yeah. and stuff like that. And stuff like that you can appreciate because, you know, there's that sort of famous meme of Liam Neeson jumping over a fence and taking seven or whatever it is, where it's like filmed for like 15 angles and cuts like 48 times in three <laughs> seconds. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there was a few bits of this. When I was thinking about like Batista, he's, you know, oh, he's got a sort of wrestling background, so I'd imagine he's quite agile. I've seen him in an MMA fight as well. So I'd imagine mm-hmm. he can handle himself. But he's a big lump of a guy as well. And like speaking as a big lump of a guy, to go running across tabletops and casino tables and stuff like that, and to get it to look that fluid with such a sort of big, hulking sort of guy, I thought he really shot that well. I will give him credit for that. Yeah. Well, look, let's not forget, guys, as well, this is a zombie film. And let's talk about the base level things that you would expect from a good, hard R rated zombie film, and that's the gore. And when I think about this film and I think of gore, the main scene that sticks out is Garrett Dillahan's character of Martin and his death at the hands of that. Fucking awesome zombie tiger. Well, I see go with Gore as well. When he when he chopped off the sort of oh, I can't, can't remember the name of it, the sort of zombie queen's head as well. I thought that was quite yeah effective. with the with a yeah garroted yeah you know it was like, quite effective yeah. But yeah but yeah like you mm. see the zombie tiger. But I will have side with Bill on that as well. The zombie tiger. I was like yeah, but it does look kind of CG ish, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't have the weight, you know? It's the uncanny valley. Even though half of it's skeletonized, the half that's not skeletonized looks kind of bogus, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's almost that sort of Leo getting bear-raped, isn't it, in the, in the, the Revenant, like, where you sort of go, the bits when he's on the ground where they've obviously got, like, an actor behind him sort of just pushing him along the ground look quite effective, but every time he cuts to the bear, you go, yeah. <laughs> and yet that weird, um, that weird skeletal bear who mimics the woman's voice in Annihilation looked more oh, real. Yeah. Looked more yes. real than this oh, thing. Oh God, that was still to this day one of the most unholy, unnatural, terrifying <laughs> things I've seen in a film in recent years. The other day, Neil, obviously you and I and the rest of the Film 89 crew were having a private discussion on WhatsApp about this film, and Steve mentioned about the tiger. And I'm like. Don't spoil it, Steve, for the others who haven't seen it, because I genuinely have stayed away from all trailers for this film, all you know, social media stuff until I'd seen the film. So I wasn't aware of the fact that it featured a zombie tiger. And when I saw it, I thought, yeah, that is pretty fucking cool. And then, and then when Garrett Dillahunt drops that awesome line, that's, that's crossing the line, <laughs> it, it worked for me because I went in blind. You know, at least thematically, um, it it heralds the fact that it was going to be his death, which I you know I like that little pickup story type thing where if you're going to mention him being particularly offended by it, that spells he's got to be killed by it. In that respect, yeah. that's a little bit of tidy bookkeeping. Yeah, yeah. I think you see, there's, there's there's a lot of thoughts gone into that as well. I mean, it's like you know you can look at that and you can go, oh, a zombie tiger, but you you know when he came up with that idea, he had the sort of Siegfried and Roy sort of element that you know he probably spent a couple of weeks in Vegas thinking what can we use and stuff like that. 
and it's it, it looks great but it's like okay yeah that kind of works you know but like again signing with bill again it's cool but it's a little bit uncanny valley and a little bit just takes you out of it a little bit sometimes but again i don't know how you do how you do a, a zombie tiger without using cg i don't know <laughs> exactly. it, look, it looks like the yeah. life of pi tiger i mean which is not to say it's bad but in the life of pi it was just, it was supposed to be kind of a surreal looking but this was you know supposed to have more weight i think than it did Basically, I would use real gun flare and I would have a real tiger on set at all times, Bill. If I was ever making yes, a movie yes, at right. any time, even if the film didn't actually have a tiger in it, I would have a live tiger there just for such, you know, just as a fallback. You know, and apparently, Neil, if certain sources of trivia to be believed, the, ti- the real tiger they used in several scenes actually belonged to Carol Baskin. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did read that. Yes, I not read that. that. Yeah. Not that bitch. <laughs> 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 By the way, Garrett, you're speaking of Garrett Dillon's character. I think his name was Matthew, or I don't know what the hell it was. But Martin, 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 his his death. You want to talk about all of the you know one for one Jim Cameron swipes? He bars the door like Carter Burke does. He oh god yeah him. yeah. He, Runs away with, you know, Carter Burke was trying to run away with the facehuggers to bring it back to the company as Garrett Dillon did. And then he winds up fighting the monster that's going to kill him. And it kills him in a vicious way, the same way Paul Reiser dies. That is one of the bigger obvious lips. But Bill, it wasn't it even a line where it was, you don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage, which <laughs> is the line from Aliens. And there was a similar line in this film, which was basically cribbed almost yeah, you know, word for word from aliens. Yeah, because when he went on about the, you know, the the real value is, and it was, I can't remember the exact yeah. words, but it was, I remember thinking at the time, oh, okay, <laughs> so, yeah, that's aliens. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It, so, it, it me, really if you did get a, to if the you point. Do an aliens homage, and you've got some sort of um, Latin actress in the back, and she's got a red headband on her arm. That's as far as you go. Yeah. Yeah. Think, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's smart. Yeah, I would I would say that. Yeah, and you go any further, and you, you, you're fucking with the classics, then, and you, you you're taking me out of it. You're annoying me now. To begin with, I go, oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty clever. You know, then, the, the worst thing you could do it sometimes is remind somebody of one of the best movies ever made. Honestly, it it doesn't do your work any service if you're heavily, heavily, heavily homaging it because again, it's the best movie ever made. Generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I was going to say, you know, not to say that Aliens is the best movie ever made, but it's, you know, it's up there for me. But <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You would imagine that there's a there's a, a deleted scene where Martin didn't get killed by the tiger, where it was he and uh, Maria were backed into a corner, and she detonated a, a, a grenade, and just as she did, it goes, "You always were an asshole, it's Martin." Yeah. You know. <laughs> It's just like, come on. Yeah, and like I was saying, that's that's the thing. Like I've said, I've already said it. That that's the thing where you just wish there was someone there just going, "Okay, pump the brakes a little bit, Zach." Yeah, you know. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and you know, there were things which were just set up that I didn't think paid off. Like Amari Hardwick's character, he makes so much of a thing about that circle of sort. And do we really see his? I, I was almost almost expecting like bad taste levels of gore. Oh with, wow! Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it um, which, which is the one with the the lawnmower? Is that brain dead? Yeah, brain dead. Brain dead. Brain dead, yeah. You know, I was expecting those levels of carnage and gore, and I thought if you're going to invest in setting something up like that, then come on, follow through. Well, you know. I, I gotta, I gotta be honest. That was the sort of feeling I had by about sort of three quarters of the way through that film. Was oh, I'm going to get to see him use that uh, circular saw at a later date anyway, because I'm going to see yeah. the prequel or I'm going to see whatever you know. Because the bit with uh, when they sort of do the sort of Ocean's Eleven homage, if you like, about you know the, the, the this simple in and out, you do this, you do that. 
and it cuts to them all sort of shot, you know, sort of standing there looking cool, like firing machine guns out of each hand. And a Dita guy's there, and he's wielding um, the baseball bat, and he like Lucille from yeah. The Walking Dead. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. oh, right, okay, we're obviously going to all got their own little sort of. This is going to be like a computer game film now, where everyone's got their choice of weapons, and that circle of saw is going to be almost passed from person to person as you know as it goes down the line or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it was never really used, was it? No. Yeah, you know, there were there were things that he just didn't follow up on. But look, the one thing that we haven't mentioned is the main player, who is Dave Batista. Yeah, I I got to say it. Uh, you know, big fan of Dave Batista. I think he's great. But I think you could have taken any number of, of leading actors and, and put them in that role and it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. I didn't particularly like the story he had with his daughter. For me, that kind of maybe slowed the film down. You know, we're talking about a film that's two hours and 28 minutes, I think. You know, if you put less emphasis on stuff like that, which is a little bit rote, it's a little bit, you know, cheesy and you know, we've seen it all a thousand, told a thousand times before in different films and other media... I just I don't think the film needed it. I think it could have just focused more on some of the characters that we didn't see enough of. Yeah, it seemed quite strange. It was almost as if we'll sort of put the you know the sort of story one hundred and one basics there, which was like, and he has to re, you know sort of reaffirm his relationship with his estranged daughter. And it's like, yeah, well, how many times have we? seen It would that? have been more realistic if she said, "Dad, I'm coming." Well, she was calling him Scott as well, wasn't she? And I was like, "I bet mm. towards the end, I bet when he dies or towards the end, she's going to call him Dad." Okay, mm. <laughs> and it was just like. I'm coming with you, Scott. And you've just gone, no, you're fucking not. What? Yeah. You're crazy. No, it's fucking... Yeah, no way. 15 well, square yeah. miles of zombies out there. Fuck off, you're not coming. And I would have gone, <laughs> right, that's a brilliant. We're off of the races yeah. now. But it's like, oh, I can just see it sort of like attaching that cliche to the film again, like, you know? I see the blueprints of what, what uh, Snyder wanted because in the, you know, in the credit sequence... One of the vignettes was, um, you know, was Batista doing the knife through his wife's head, putting her down after she turned and the daughter being aghast. And it's like, again, you could look at this as being a telegraph, a promise to pay later, a bank check to pay later, that at some point she's going to have to do the same thing to her father, almost as a rite of passage to say, you're in his shoes now. I mean, I don't need it. I get why they did it. There's something kind of poetic about it. I just don't think it served it in this movie. Exactly what you say, Sky, in terms of there's just too much of this emotional overhead that nothing is really earned. To be honest, we would very much like a Steven Soderbergh-esque bank job. And, you know, the characters bop in and out in the service of the gig, you know, and you get, you know, uh, Lyman Zerger comes in with his gems and he wants, you know, I want to see the I want to see the vault I'm going to put my gems into mm-hmm. as he's yeah. pretending to be some, you know, Israeli or Swiss millionaire weird extraction. And, you know, whatever little stories they came up with along the way completely served the premise. Uh, but you have all these extra side things that I just don't think Snyder may, in fact, care about them as a director, but I just don't think he's motivated enough as a director to be able to execute them. I just don't know if he really understands human feelings. I mean, we know he understands human feelings, but I I don't think as a director he's able to motivate actors to, to play them because... I will agree with you. Dave Bautista has a lot of different strengths. He's proven to be very um, versatile as an actor, mostly in these action spots. And I think at this point now, he is a guy we want to see. And you know what? We'd probably rather have him 
than someone else who's weak sauce. And there's a lot of those guys that they're counting on to be action stars, and they're clearly not. And Dave Bautista has the meat to do it and the charisma. But I think asking him to tote around a lot of pathos, a lot of sadness, and indicate a lot of, like, you know, souls-crushing horror isn't really the best use of Dave Bautista. And yes, other other guys can do it better. And he, you know, slides across the table in full tack gear, uh, just as good as anybody else. But I wouldn't ask him to have a daughter. I wouldn't ask him to restart his family and explain what happened over the last few years. I think with Batista, I think you've got a sort of, I think you've got two types of action star. I think you've got an action star, like uh, I'll probably go for a fellow wrestler, go for The Rock, mm-hmm. who realizes I'm a persona. You know, funny enough, I was having this conversation with Hayden on one of the other podcasts years ago. Where he was, I just don't get Arnie films. And I was like, you don't get Arnie films because you're, you're in your early 20s. If you grew up watching Arnie films, you get Arnie films because it was a yeah. persona of Arnie. It was the yeah. cult of personality. And if you look, I think The Rock does it now, where in every film, it's basically, it doesn't matter if he's playing a chopper, a pilot, or a, you know, a brain surgeon, it's basically Dwayne The Rock Johnson is. Yeah. And I think with Batista, I think Batista is going, to, I think Batista believes he's a better actor. I think Batista believes that he's an actor now. And I, I will say, if you look at him in like sort of Blade Runner 2049, he's actually pulling in a good performance there. I think he's got a potential there to do it. In sort of the sort of more quiet and more reflective moments of Drax, there's some sort of dramatic pose there. But in this film, it was again, it was almost like someone giving him too much. Yeah. And yeah, saying, yeah, like, I agree, I agree, yeah. and your yeah. character really has pathos here. And it's like, it doesn't really need that. You <laughs> just go in there no. and shoot zombies in the head, mate. Yeah. I've, yeah. I think, Neil, you've, you've summed up perfectly for, the, for me what my issue is with his character. Yeah. Uh, guys, you know, we, we got to talk about the zombie technology of this movie because, you know, uh, you assume that Snyder getting back into doing an undead movie, he would not be inclined to do it because he said just about everything he, I'm sure, had to say back in 2004 with the original, uh, well, the, the original remake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the remake of the remake. The remake of the remake. And so you assume that he's going to come back to it if he can amplify or plus the whole concept. So, you know, this, to be honest, was the thing when I watched the trailer that that I was, you know, clench. I was curling my toes and, and, and squinting and clenching to see what is this going to be? What kind of zombies is this? Because I'm not saying we didn't have the kind of um, aerobic zombies that he popularized in 2004, because, I mean, 28 Days Later came out around that time, too. But, I mean, that was the... Um, you know, it was kind of the crest of a new tide of fast-running, fast-moving, active, you know, aerobic, ectomorph uh, zombie, you know, who were marathon runners, which is cool. It was new technology. Um, and it was just a slight variation of the thing we already knew. Um, but the thing is, this introduces a whole other concept of organizational structure and intelligence and command and actually, if you want to even go to spoiler alert, reproduction. I mean, there's all sorts mm. of things that this movie introduces that we haven't seen before. It made me think a little bit of the concept of like Dungeons and Dragons, like the Barrow White, which was the Game of Thrones thing about the zombies with a command structure. So, I mean, I'm really curious to see what you guys thought about it, because it's like we've talked a lot about concept and execution. But it's like that is one of the underpins of doing one of these movies is what kind of fucking zombie are you going to use for this thing? 
Yeah, but I think he used every kind of zombie. He used the shufflers. He used the fast ones that we first saw in uh, 28 Days Later. You know, he then used this sort of high-level iteration of the zombie, you know, the, the, the alpha zombie in the form of Zeus and his queen, which, you know, like, like I said, to me, they seemed very alien. And I would have liked, you know, that type of zombie and the fact that they, they were the, the alpha ones, so to speak, and to, to, to be linked to the beginnings of the fact that this initial one is being brought from Area 51. And I think it it gave us a lot. It gave us everything, right? Here's every kind of zombie you've ever seen before. But what we're going to do is we're going to hint at a possible explanation as in this universe. Don't think, you know, Snyder intended to connect this to uh, Dawn of the Dead directly and and exist in the same universe. We're going to give you all of these different types of zombies. We're going to show this evolution of the zombie. We're going to show it with a with an intelligence, with a hierarchical structure. Um, we're going to show these zombies behaving in ways different to what you've seen before in countless other TV shows, films, video games, whatever. But what ultimately we're not going to do at this point in time is follow it through with an explanation or even enough information or exposition that you're allowed to or able to come up with your own version of it. Because like you said, Neil, I think it's a lot of universe building here. I think from that point of view, the film should have been a bit more self-contained, a lot of less focus on extraneous subplots, things with Dave Batista and his daughter, which I just don't think we needed. It's nothing original. It's nothing we haven't seen countless times before. And I think that point, from that point of view, to answer your question, Bill, it gives us a lot, but at the same time, it doesn't give us enough. Yeah, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. For me, exactly. I love the idea of like a sort of like a hierarchy, and it was almost like mm. if you get bitten by the alpha, you become like yeah. you know the sort of top tier zombie. But if you get yeah. bitten by one of the top tier zombies, you become a lesser zombie. If you get bitten by one of the lesser zombies, you become an even lesser zombie. And it was yeah. almost, almost that sort of vampire effect, you know, with the sort of like, you know, um, Thralls, you know, I can kill, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can sort of mm. give you life or I can take it away or I can make you immortal. I like that idea. But there was also, even with the sort of little the zombie baby sort of story that we had, I was thinking, well, is that baby blue or is it, you know, because it's a dead fetus or is it some sort of alien sort of thing? You know, it was... There was so much sort of tease with it. The actual sort of structure of the zombies, I think, actually makes sense. Like you say, if you look at it from a, this is the alpha and it goes down the yeah. line, that hmm. it's quite surprising. No one's ever really thought of doing anything like that before. Like you say, it was like everything was teased, but not a lot given. We've done it before with things where we said, oh, you know, and you know, especially with the MCU stuff, where we've gone, oh, it's come back to bite us on the ass. I criticised that at the time, but then. You know, seven films down. I, you know, had reinforcement. Or they made me look an idiot for saying that. With this type of film, you don't do that. Hmm. Yeah. You, you want to know something that really uh, filled my imagination? And this was this was a throwaway at the very beginning of the movie, and yet it was something we had never seen before, so far as I know. As they cross the threshold of the shipping container labyrinth into, you know, they they got that ring and then they finally walk into the sun sunshine of uh, the maze that the you know into it. One of the first things they encounter is all of these desiccated skeletal bodies, you know, sort of like frozen yeah. in state. And the 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 coyote says to them, "These are the ones who were stupid enough to get caught outside." Uh, so they be, you know they essentially desiccate to this shape because like all you need is one of those weird desert rains and they kind of revivify, because I mean it's it, so many zombie movies never address the mechanical difficulties or at least the the advantages of telling a movie with the fact that zombie you know zombieism 
you know, like you do need some sort of mechanical ability to move the body, muscle tissue, joints, you know, uh, you can desiccate, but you do need legs, you need joints, you need to be able to locomote. And I like that this is one of the first times I've ever seen this where it's like they dried out to the point of being frozen. And it's like, imagine if it started to rain and these things began to writhe because they got moist again. They could move. That would have been something we never saw before. I like the fact that mm. it was just throwaway, but I could imagine what it would have been like seeing it. I thought that was, yeah. I was going to say at that point, I thought, oh, that's going to be the actual titular army of the dead. As in they're yeah. going to get through whatever yeah. they need to get through. And then right at the end, it's going to be like, oh, fuck, it's raining. Yeah. And then you get like thousands of these things coming to life, you know, because as, as much as the walking dead went way off my radar after about season five, I think I was, a, there was one scene in that where they were like going through some river banks or something. And they were like sort of swollen, sort of bloated zombies came out of the water or walkers as they gone, came out of the water. And I was like, Oh, that's great. Cause it's like actually thinking how would someone who was like zombified look if they'd been in the water for like the last three, four weeks. And mm, like you say, yeah. the, the sort of impetus is there. You sort of think like stuff like that. You think oh, that's really clever. You know, they've put that in there. But like you say, it was teased, and then that was the end of it. We never saw anything again. And I yeah, kind of yeah. get the feeling that if all this pans out the way it's supposed to pan out, that in Army of the Dead Seven or whatever, we'll see <laughs> the we'll see we'll see those come alive. And it's like it's a little bit too little, too late now. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk about homages. We mentioned the numerous aliens references, which I think is the film that's probably, you know, comes up the most in this in, in Army of the Dead. A couple of blatant homages to Star Wars. What else did you guys spot? Neil? <laughs> Do you know, I got for aliens of Star Wars, so I can't really go for any more. Go on, I'm going to really look ignorant now. Right. The, 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 the big one for me was uh, Zeus, the, the kind of main zombie character, that helmet he puts on. Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, good one. Oh or or Urukai. Oh. He looked like an Urukai to me, too. Yeah, but I, I definitely think that's an homage to Phantom of the Paradise, the Palmer's film. Yeah. What else? What else do we have? Um, I know. This is a big one. You want to talk about Zack Snyder uh, doing the unlikely and homaging himself. Uh, the opening sequence, the the um, the montage of the opening credits that shows you how, how Vegas gets to be what it is, is set to a, what is it, Viva Las Vegas, as rendered yep. by yes. lounge singer Richard Cheese. Richard Cheese, uh, Down With The Sickness. Yes, We've exactly. Already he did an incredible, yeah. incredible version of Down With The Sickness to a great montage, which is another scene sitter in Dawn of the Dead, which is where it pretty much jumps you in time from shit's beginning to shit's continuing in a very smart editorial way. Um, this doesn't mm. quite serve that same purpose or at least have the same effect that uh, Down With the Sickness does in the original, well, I keep saying the original Dawn of the Dead, in his original zombie movie, He's but first. I think <laughs> him him using Richard Cheese is an homage to himself. And, in, and Bill, in a weird twist of time-bending kind of uh, exposition, we're, we're podcast editing sort of um, we'll put in the mind of the viewer something which you're not aware of guess what this episode is going to open to down with the sickness <laughs> it's going to be down with the sickness <laughs> Bill, just, just just to give everyone a look behind the curtain that is the film that you like podcast quite often sky will pick a, an opening track that he's going to use and at the last moment i'll send him a suggestion which he'll initially rebuke and he'll and i'll say oh okay i'll, I'll never be precious about it and then like sort of 20 minutes later he'll come back to me and go you know, actually, you're right, we're going to use that one. And I've always had it yeah. in my head that I'm sort of really good at picking out tunes. Yeah. And, I pi- yeah. and I picked out Zom- uh, Zombie by Jamie T. I don't know if you're aware of that tune. Today. No. And I said, oh, Sky, for your consideration. And then he just sent me back, come with the sickness, and I just put, I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I even think that I could complete with that? Like, you know? <laughs> 
So anyway, guys, right, let's let, let's kind of wrap things up and give our final thoughts and our, and our verdict or score out of 10 for... Before uh, we do that, well, mate, It's not Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, is it? It's just Army of the Dead. Can we stop for a sec? Before we do that, what was that fucking weird time loop conversation that he gave him in the in the um, vault? Uh, I, Neil, I don't know. I don't know. It was it was bizarre, and like the dead zombies were kind of wearing the same jewelry as some of the characters around same them. Shirts and I thought, same shirts, same shirts. Same shirts. Because that was the one reference. I was going back to references. That was the one th- the thing that I thought when I saw that. I thought, oh, Predator, Hopper. You oh. know, another team have come in before us. Yeah. When he started going about a time loop and stuff like that, I was like, oh, is this aliens? This sort of took me out of that. But I, that was the, the reference I was going to say that I forgot about earlier when we saw the sort of zombie fight sort of soldiers of fortune if you like i was like oh mm. that's a bit similar to sort of hopper's team in in predator sorry i'm gonna take it back to the acrimonious um imaginary parent split i spoke about earlier i think that's a case where Zack snyder was being a little bit too much like christopher nolan and kind of um got a bit up his own ass i think yeah i think it was being maximal i think that that was a hint at like him trying to show the futility of this as if it's all time is a flat circle kind of thing and i oh I, but, I, but, I, but, oh, no. but at the same time he doesn't right he doesn't it didn't nail it and it was as if to say this is all futile and that you know you're just as craven as the next guy and you're you know you'll be replaced by some other useless mercantile um you know mercenary along the way I, it, but it doesn't stick it doesn't stick the landing it just winds up being a throwaway that adds uh, whatever 30 seconds more to the movie which it certainly didn't need yeah and it was 30 seconds if the, if the initial team had been there and nothing had been mentioned about any sort of infinite time loops and all we just exactly. caught it. Yes, yes. It would have literally just been like a little sort of predator homage that probably one in a thousand nerds would have got, and that would have been good enough for me. But to put that in the film and then not give it a payoff is almost a sort of running theme with this film. Yeah. And like I say, you can look at it in the view of, okay, so Zack Snyder can start something, but he can't finish it. Or you can look at it from the, the hateful, sort of cynical, twisted evil machine of a man that i am when i'm just going to stop setting up other fucking properties it's maz Kanata having luke skywalker's lifesaver and her saying well that's a story for another time it's yeah like, i'm, I'm mm, done no. i don't need that shit get it get it fucking right the first time you can yeah. do as many sequels as you want from a good property i got no problem yeah. at all with that as long as each sequel adds something to the story and is enjoyable but the thing is like you say if we look at the thing that kicked off all this sort of like let's do a trilogy bullshit with Star Wars. Lucas was looking to do a fucking pared down cheap version for the <laughs> sequel because he didn't think he'd get away with it a second time. <laughs> yeah, you right. You do a quality product to begin with, then you can build on it. You don't fucking tease, and it just happens with so much with so much now, and it's like a bugbear of mine. I want to see a good film. Like I say, I love the MCU films. I, 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 I'm on record. I'm on here singing their praises all the time. But my God, sometimes they are the detriment of other properties because not everything has to be a universe. If Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead is one film and it's an enjoyable film, I'm quite happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, go on then. Final thoughts and scores out of 10 for Army of the Dead. I'll be completely honest, mate. If this was in the cinema, I wouldn't have rushed to have seen it, especially after the sort of track record of we got with Snyder. I think he's having a bit of a comeback, and he's having 2021 for him is probably the year of his like sort of redemption, isn't it? If I'd gone to the cinema to watch this, I probably would have gone if you'd said, Neil, we're going to do a podcast, let's go and watch it on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and I would have been over enthusiastic about it. 
the fact that I can sit here on a Friday night and watch it on Netflix, this is the wrong thing to say on a film review show. Everyone's gone on about the, the sort of death of cinema. They can't wait to get back to cinema. I'm kind of antisocial. With a lot of films, I don't need to go and sit next to a bunch of morons who are on their phones for two and a half hours. So mm. I quite like sitting down and watching a movie that doesn't need a big screen sort of production in front of me. The fact that I can watch this on Netflix on a Friday night with a couple of beers, I'm enjoying. I think the film promises a lot more than it delivers. I can see this being a sort of almost a divisive film where some people will say, you know, the sort of Snyder heads out there or whatever they call themselves will probably get behind this and say this proves what an auteur he is and what a great director he is and stuff like that. Uh, is it as good as his, as his original zombie film? No, it's not. Is it an enjoyable romp that I can sort of sort of sit on my sofa and watch on a Friday night? It is. I think, like you said, there's too for me. There's too many sort of unanswered questions. Uh, like I said I know I've been cynical all the way through this. There's too many sort of little Easter eggs that don't need to be there. In much the same way I was saying about the Snyder cut with Justice League. You could lob at least 20, 30 minutes of this. I mean, at least 15 minutes of that would be fucking slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From an enjoyment point of view, this film is a solid sort of 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10. From a practical view, it's probably a 5 out of 10. I'm going to go, I want to say 6, but I'm going to be overly generous and say I enjoyed the film, so I'll give it a 7 out of 10. I, I'm I'm not going to fall foul of what I... I, I we got we were always honest, Neil and me yeah. on this podcast. We're always honest with our with our with the readers, with the listeners. I don't think it's it's always easy to watch a film or, or a new show and, and there and then make a judgment of it that you're gonna agree with for you know the next six months, next year, whatever. And I, I think that we went into Zack Snyder's Justice League with such low expectation and bearing in mind how poorly we thought of the 2017 version and I think we were so pleasantly surprised that we overlooked a lot of our film's flaws flaws which were there from the start and which, yeah. which just remained so I think we were a bit too generous with our film so I'm not going to make the same mistake here but I did go in with the same lack of expectation and I, I did enjoy it and those two hours and 28 minutes didn't lag for me but I can't go away from the fact that you know, we spent much of this episode highlighting a lot of stuff that's wrong with the film. And I think that, you know, this is apparently the first time that Zack Snyder's been given complete free reign of a film. You know, there's not going to be any director's cut of this film because the version that we've seen is Zack Snyder's final complete version. Call it what you want. No, we want to release a Snyder cut of this now that we... Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's too flabby in a lot of areas. There's a lot of stuff that's set up that isn't paid off. And like you say, Neil, there's a lot of universe building, which means that this isn't a self-contained film. And we may never see anything else in this Army of the Dead universe, which could mean that a lot of the stuff in here is extraneous and didn't need to be there. From a point of view of... I will forgive the CG effects. You know, there's, there's mention of it being $90 million or $70 million budget. I think he made a lot of that money go further than other directors could have. I like the epic scope of it. I like the way that this, you know, they, they went to a lot of effort to take a lot of like sort of aerial shots of Las Vegas and, and turn that into this destroyed CGI enhanced version of the city. There were a lot of things about the film I liked and they had a goddamn zombie tiger, which yes, he was CG, but how else are you going to do him? I thought he was fucking brilliant. Um, there were a couple of lines in the film I thought were absolute perlers. Unfortunately, then there were a lot of other lines like the concert homages that made me cringe. Initially, I was leaning towards a seven, but when I think about a lot of the problems of the film, I'm going to go with the score. I think in six months' time, I'm going to be happier to reflect on. I think, yeah, that's an accurate view of 
how I judge that film. So I'm going to go a six out of ten. I'll be completely honest with you. Without a shadow of a doubt, within like a week or two of this, I won't have any argument against that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I'm being generous. I'm going to give this a four out of ten. Uh, I. <laughs> I, no, look, Lynn, I, I uh, watch this movie. I want to see movies like this. I want them to come. I want them to hit streaming. You know, to, to like you say, Neil, I mean, there are some $10 million movies that should be in the cinema, and there's some $120 million movies that should be on streaming. I mean, yeah. it, it's not so much a matter of scale. It's a matter of are you getting the job done, and is this a movie I should see in this venue? Uh, and this, to me, was a $90 million movie that is perfectly at home and forgettable next week. I don't think people are going to be talking about this. Um, it's going to come. It's going to go. That's fine. Yeah. There's so much stuff. We're still in the dregs of quarantine. So many of our countries are still locked inside. But within a couple of weeks, we should have decent uh, clearance rates in terms of vaccinations. Mm. But I watch this movie as much as an analyst, as much as a fan, as much as a lover of zombie fiction, and and a real enthusiast for you know for that first zombie movie that he made that that kicked off his career. And at heart, I do believe Zack Snyder was uh, an ingenious, witty ironic humanist director and i think that that's gotten covered over with a patina of self-confidence and a, a little bit of bulletproof i mean you know i know he got dinged after his family tragedy he got dinged after the fact that i'm sure the criticism of his dc comics movies he ate away at his ego a little bit but i think that he might have rebuilt himself in the wrong way and that he's focused on the wrong parts of his filmmaking to, to alloy himself and this is the problem and it's like i had a feeling that seeing his new work as opposed to the recapitulation of his 2017 work may be a real bellwether of where Zack Snyder stands today. And I think this movie earns four stars out of 10 for me because of his strengths that are still there, the ability that have him to get these great actors. Uh, there's still there's a lot of sweat equity. I mean, sweat does not, drops of sweat don't always equal great work, nor should you always celebrate toil if it is sort of, you know, feckless or useless. I don't think that's the case. I just think that his bad tendencies get in the way of his good tendencies and they handicap what otherwise could have been a great movie because, I mean, on, on paper, the log line of this Ocean's Eleven set during a zombie apocalypse where somehow money still has value and society hasn't caved is a movie I want to see. Uh, but just this wasn't yeah. the execution of that. And uh, I don't know what it would take to get Zack Snyder back to the position where he's the kind of guy I want to see do that or what movie in particular I think he could execute should he do a pain and gain like uh, michael bay did should he do a matchstick man like ridley scott these things that are free of um, pyrotechnics and they're mostly just like complex human dramas with a lot of moving pieces that are fun and like you know gimcrack type construction i don't know maybe that's the answer but i'm not feeling really especially generous after this weekend to be honest do you know what after listening to both you guys i gotta come down to a six I'm being overly generous. I've, I've got to come down to a six. That's fair. I, That's fair. I know. I know. It's very rare that I'll. It's very rare that I'll do this. I'm looking at it from like an enjoyment point of view. I've sat there on a Friday night, couple of beers, sat on the sofa watching this big dumb movie and being reminded of when I was 14. The more I look at this, I'm going to listen back to this. Not even in a month's time, in a week's time, in a day's time. And I'm going to kick myself for saying seven. I'm going to go down to a six, and that's a generous six. And I can, yeah, I agree, Neil. I feel that my six is generous as well, but I can only applaud your honesty. So, yeah, there you go. That's a six, a six, and a four, which gives us an average of 5.3 recurring, rounded down. So that's a full 89 verdict for Army of the Dead of five out of ten. And it's quite bizarre, but we're saying a 5 out of 10 film. Did any of us come away from this film going, that was a waste of two hours and 30 or 28 minutes of my life? 
Strangely enough, no, I didn't. I thought it was a waste of thirty minutes of that two hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think, like you say, I think, yeah. it's, I think it's a much better two-hour movie there, isn't there? Yeah, and I think much like guys, how a zombie would be deprived of nutrients and be craving flesh. I think after all of this time in lockdown and without the cinema, we're, we're just craving a decent film back in the environment that we love, and it comes to the point where I'll just take anything at the moment. <laughs> It's kind of the conversation we had privately after Extraction, wasn't it? Where both of us were saying we enjoyed Extraction, but I was saying to you, I don't know if I'd have enjoyed Extraction as much had I been able to go to the cinema and watch that. Yeah, because I think if we'd gone to the cinema to watch it, it would have been because we'd seen trailers and the like, whereas I went into Extraction completely blind and I was I came out of it thinking, holy shit, where did that come from? I really enjoyed and it. And without sounding like a complete sort of cheapskate as well, there is always that thing. Whenever I watch something on a streaming service, well, I go, well, it's kind of free. And it's not free because mm. it's not free because I've already paid for it. You've already paid for it. But I've paid yeah. I've paid for Netflix so I could watch I don't know, like like you say, Luke Cage or whatever. I've paid for Netflix so I can watch whatever and Bill's hit the nail straight on there there, whatever series of the week it is. Because the days of us watching things like, you know, like if you look at the sort of T V sort of revolution of the sort of Sopranos and Breaking Bad and stuff like that, those days are gone now. Because you you binge watch whatever's hot this week, and like Bill says, by next week you've forgotten about it. Yeah, you know. And like yeah. I say with a streaming service, like you know, like I say I'm there going, ah, it's a Friday night on Netflix anyway, so I'll just chuck this on and, and watch it. And it's not free, is it? Because you, 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 you have paid for it. But yeah, when you're watching it, you go, that's ah, all right, it's free anyway. You know, it's like if you go to the cinema and paid like you know, by the time you've parked up and had something to eat and stuff like that, you're looking like sort of twenty, thirty quid. You'd have probably come out a lot more sort of critical of things you know so there you go so neil where can people reach me if they want to get hold of me on social media <laughs> i would believe they could reach you at sky movies on twitter and the same name on facebook or they could get you via film89.co.uk excellent and i think if you want to get hold of neil you can get hold of him on, on twitter and facebook at no in fact just twitter at neil underscore gaskin he doesn't like to give his Facebook handle away. And yet you can, obviously, if you want to speak to Neil or myself via email, it's admin at film89.co.uk. And you can reach us all at the site on Twitter and Facebook at film89uk. Bill. I'm on Twitter at William Scurry. Uh, that's where you see me popping off uh, and sharing my own podcast. Uh, I don't get it. I'm also, you can look for me on Facebook. I'm, I'm, I'm planning on Facebook at Bill Scurry. I'm available for friendships or grinders or whatever it is Neil wants me to do. I, I'm very, <laughs> I'm a very cheap date. <laughs> so there you go, Bill. It's been great having you back on. And I, I hope uh, it's not going to be a year long gap until you uh, make uh, you know your next appearance. Oh, no, thanks. This has been great. And it's a good mood to talk about. And you guys are the guys I like talking about it with. Oh, it's always a, ple- awesome. always a pleasure, Bill. Always a pleasure. Yes, sir. So there you go, guys and girls. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please, if you could give us a like and subscribe on your podcast provider of choice. And also, if you could, if you've got access to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. If you could, that would do us a a great deal of good. And yeah, it's uh, as usual. uh, Stay safe. Uh, If you've got any bites or whatever, then make sure you deal with them appropriately. And more importantly, release the scurry cut. Stay gassy. (laughs) (laughs) We're out of here.